The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from John 16, 16 through 22 and 33. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? You will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Well, if you do have a Bible or a phone or the bulletin, go ahead and get to John chapter 16. It's going to take us a little bit to get there because I want to make sure we're all on the same page for where uh, we're going tonight. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I have the privilege of serving as uh, the pastor here at Citizens. Real quick, I want to point your attention to something uh, before we hop in. In two Sundays from now, we're going to be doing uh, our first ever fall festival. Uh, now, yeah, that's cool. Um, now, if you grew up in church world like I did, you probably have a lot of thoughts that immediately entered your mind so uh, about what a fall festival is and why you don't want to attend. Um, so we are trying to do fall festival, but cool. Uh, and so we're going to have live music. We're going to have food trucks. We're going to have games for adults and kids uh, all outside, COVID safe, all of that fun stuff. Uh, I wanted to bring this up because we have invite cards out on uh, the table right there in the back of the sanctuary. We would love for you to grab. They're in stacks of five. We would love for you to grab a handful of those. They're really easy a way to invite your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers uh, or anything or anybody uh, that you might want to invite. So we're going to have worship at five. And then right afterward, we're going to head out to the back parking lot and celebrate. Uh, it's probably not going to feel like fall, but we are going to usher it in uh, through our festivities and fun and prayer. Um, it's coming soon. College football is, is here. Uh, very excited. Uh, let me pray for us. And let's get into God's word together. God, thank you so much for the chance to gather with your people, God, the chance to, to once again open your word. God, thank you for um, the joy of Jesus. I thank you that as we read the Gospels, we don't read uh, the, sto the story of someone who um, was separated from humanity, was uh, just kind of floating around, Lord, but, but your son came and took on flesh and lived life with its lows, but also its highs. And he laughed, that he ate, that he drank, that he enjoyed the company of his friends and his family. God, thank you for the joy of Jesus, ultimately, which led him to the cross. And I pray as we look at your word, God, you would convict us, you would shape us more and more into the fruit of joy. We love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, tonight we are on week three of our 10-week series called The Fruit of the Spirit in the Time of the Flesh, where we are seeking to become like Jesus more and more as we look at these battles between the flesh, our sin nature, this part of us that is in rebellion against God and the Holy Spirit this third member of the Trinity who is given to us when we become believers. And so last week we talked about love in a time of selfishness, that the world and our flesh are pulling us towards life being all about me, me, me. What do I want? What do I need? What is best for me? And yet the fruit of the spirit is love. And so tonight we're going to look at the second part of the fruit and we're going to talk about joy in a time of cynicism. Joy in a time of cynicism. Let's start by talking about cynicism. Cynicism can be defined as the belief that something good cannot or will not happen, and even if it does, it won't matter. Belief that something good cannot or will not happen, and even if it does, it won't matter. Cynicism at its core is a suspicion of the good. Good in the world, good in others, good in God. And we live in a time and a culture of cynicism. Now, if you are cynical, you don't believe me. That's a joke. Let me show you some stats. One recent study found that in the past 10 years, trust for politicians has gone from 49% to 22%. And trust for corporations and companies has dropped from 54% to 33%. In another study, only 16% of millennials think that most people can be trusted. And if you start looking up stats on Gen Z, you guys who were born sometime after 96, 97, and basically every article just calls you the cynical generation. Like it doesn't even have stats, it's just like Gen Z, you guys, cynical. It's like a one-for-one correlation. I think our cynical generation is part of the reason why we are obsessed with conspiracy theories. Like, we're just obsessed, right? Like, this is a myth, that's a hoax, aliens, do they exist? Like, we just are obsessed with these conspiracy theories because we're cynical and we have to believe that there is some proverbial man behind the curtain pulling the strings of what we're experiencing in life. We live in a time of cynicism, suspicion of the good in our lives, in others, in God, in institutions, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the deal. Why wouldn't we be cynical? Like, why wouldn't we be cynical, right? We live in a broken, messed up world. Turn on the news for five minutes or take one scroll through your Instagram or Twitter feed. And what do you'll see? That we live in a broken, fallen world, right? Terror and agony and pain going on overseas in Afghanistan. Just one natural disaster after natural disaster in Haiti and out west, a global pandemic and variant after variant continuing to threaten lives and further shutdowns. We've lived as a generation through an economic recession, through a housing crisis, abuse scandals inside and outside of the church, corruption, and that's just to name a few. We live in a broken, messed up world. Why wouldn't we be cynical? I love the way that the 1970s musician Frank Zappa put it. He was a very good guitarist, also did a lot of drugs. But here's what he said. He said, I think, it's true. He said, I think that if a person doesn't feel cynical, then they're out of phase with the 20th century. Being cynical is the only way to deal with modern civilization. You can't just swallow it whole. Now, no one ever starts cynical, right? Like, if you were to go to a three-year-old and you were to ask them, hey, nice child, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
Now, chances are there's a good chance that they're not going to reply with something like, well, I really want to play in the NFL, but given my distinct lack of size and athletic ability and the height and size of my parents, you know, I just thought I would save myself from years of embarrassment and being third string running back on my high school football team. And instead of the NFL, I'm just going to go into business. Right? Like, that would be weird. You would be very sad for that three-year-old. If you go to a three-year-old and you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? They're going to be like, football, NFL, blah. Right? When I was growing up, I wanted to be a hip-hop music producer. <laughs> My parents were very patient with me. But here's the deal. We laugh because there's this certain, like, naivety, and I mean that in a positive sense. Like, there's this certain joyful foolishness in children that we say, well, yeah, they're that way because they just haven't faced reality yet. They just haven't lived enough life. That'll, that'll fade. Because here's what happens. We all walk through this, and this is what I want to break down for us tonight. We walk through what we'll call the cynicism cycle. Here's what happens. We begin, as we grow up, to develop certain expectations in life. For our culture, overwhelmingly, that expectation is happiness that life will go exactly how we want, how we want it to go, that everything will work out okay, we'll get whatever it is our dream is, whether that's two kids, white picket fence in the suburbs, or whether that's single, urban life, high-rise career, all of that, we're gonna get whatever it is we want. Here's the problem, we all face this thing called life, reality, right? You live any amount of time on this earth and you learn that you can't always get what you want. That life is broken, that sin is real, that our realities don't go perfectly according to our plans. And so we struggle. We have unmet expectations, brokenness, pain, suffering. This is a part of living as broken people in a broken world. And so eventually we have to do something with that reality. And our coping mechanism in the flesh, separated from the life of God. Remember, week one, we said the flesh isn't just rebellion against God. It's also life lived independently from God. And so our way of dealing with reality apart from God is to self-protect by giving up hope and living in despair. We start to despair. We give up hope. And then hope gives way to the fruit of cynicism, which then begins to cloud our expectations. This is how life is. This is how I am. This is how it's always going to be. They're going to let me down. They're not going to come through. That's not going to go well. This is how it is. It's cynicism, the cynicism cycle. Our default response in our flesh to the brokenness of the world is to self-protect through cynicism. Because if we stop expecting good, we won't have to deal with the disappointment when what we want doesn't come true. So we land at cynicism. And then to make matters even worse, it's almost like we begin to take pride in how cynical we can be. We begin to think that cynicism is a marker of maturity. We can disguise it. We call it wisdom or realism. We start to say or think things like, well, you think that way because you just don't really know enough. Or, well, you're optimistic about them because you just haven't been burned in relationships like I have. We do this really clearly, I think, with uh, newly engaged couples or people that are expecting their first kid, right? Like, it's like, yes, so exciting. That is awesome. Whew, it's really, really tough, though. And then what do we say? Wait until you hit reality, right? We have this pride in our cynicism. I love the way philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it. He said it this way. He said, there is a shrewdness which, almost with pride, presumes to have special elemental knowledge of the shabby side of existence, that everything finally ends in wretchedness. 
There's a pride that we take in knowing that we think we see the underbelly of life, that everything is going to go poorly. And it's cynicism. And cynicism is not a fruit of life in the spirit. Cynicism is a marker of the flesh. Why? Because cynicism is a marker of disbelief. Cynicism demands a culture of suspicion and doubt and uncertainty towards God, towards the church, toward other believers, toward any type of authority, particularly for us, spiritual authority. Cynicism towards others. Cynicism is a work of the flesh, not of the spirit. But the alternative, here's the thing, the alternative offered to us in the world and sadly often in the church isn't actually any better because we see the cynicism cycle and we think the answer is the optimism cycle. Here's what happens with the optimism cycle. Reality, again, doesn't match our expectations. We're hurt, we're suffering, we're broken, and then we sit down with a friend or we get on social media or sadly we show up to church and it's just like, here comes the hype train. Hey, I know you're suffering. I know you have problems. I know you walked in here beat up and broken by life, but God's got a plan. Woohoo! Let's go! So what happens is we are pushed back into a new naivety. Hey, ignore the problem. Hey, this is just a setup. Hey, it's, it's only temporary. It's not going to last. Don't worry about it. And what happens is naivety gives way to the fruit of cheap and blind optimism. The sounds or we, we think things like, well, God's got big time plans for you. This is just preparing you for that crazy stuff to come. Maybe we think, well, I know my job is really tough right now, but I know that everything works out in the end. Maybe we tell it to our friends, hey, I know you're suffering, but it's definitely going to get better. You just got to hold on. But here's the deal. That naivety and that optimism doesn't deal with the reality of life. Right? Naivety and optimism doesn't stare down the brokenness and the suffering that we face as broken people in a broken, fallen world with something that can actually help us in our time of need. Because you know, if you've ever walked through suffering, someone saying to you, hey, God's got a plan, it's going to get better, doesn't actually help. Doesn't actually fix it. So if cynicism is of the flesh and the response is not optimism, then the question is, what is it? And that's where we turn to Galatians 5 and we see that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Spirit calls us to defiant joy. We as the people of God are called to joy in a time of cynicism. So let's talk about joy. Here's how theologian Dallas Willard defines it. This is, I think, the most helpful definition that I found. He says this, joy is not a passing sensation of pleasure, but a pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. He says, joy is a pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. So joy is not bubbly feelings of happiness that rise and fall with our circumstances. Joy is not blind optimism that ignores the suffering and brokenness of our lives and the world. Joy is not the ability to go, woohoo, regardless of what you're facing because we are Christians. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. We can take John Piper's definition for it. He says this, he says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. It's a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. It's a part of the fruit of the Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word, in the Bible, and in the world. So let's look at John 16 together. I want to show you a new cycle. 
Better than cynicism cycle, better than the optimism cycle, I want to show you the joy cycle. John 16, so to kind of set the scene for us, Jesus and his disciples are at the Last Supper. And Jesus has just uh, sent Judas away. Judas has left to go set up the betrayal to hand Jesus over to the religious leaders to be crucified. And this is kind of his parting speech to the other 11, his kind of last encouragement and hope and prayer for these 11 men that he's walked with over the last few years. He's already told them in John 15 that they should abide in him. They should remain in him. And if they do that, that his joy will be in them and their joy will be full. Let me get to John 16. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go away. He's talking about his imminent death burial. He's talking about how he's going to die. He's going to get handed over to the religious leaders to be crucified. He says, hey, you're not going to see me anymore. And then in a little while, because he's going to rise from the grave, they're going to see him again. Verse 17. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So the disciples here have definitely a lot of confusion, right? They're like, what does he mean? A little while here, a little while. Like what is happening here? But there's also some fear mixed in as well. Right? So you got to remember, this is their Messiah. This is their rabbi. This is the guy that they committed the last three years of their life to following. They gave up their careers for him. They gave up their futures for him. They left their homes and their jobs for him. And they thought he was the Messiah. They thought he was the sent one of God. That Jesus was supposed to redeem God's people. He was supposed to set them free from Roman oppression. He was supposed to usher in the kingdom of God. And so they're like, he's leaving? Like, this is not making sense. Like, where's the overthrow? Where's the kingdom? Where's all of this? Where's the freedom? What is happening? Look at what Jesus says. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He's not like, hey, I'm sorry you don't understand. He just kind of doubles down. (laughs) He's like, are you asking about me leaving and coming back? By the way, this is going to happen. And it's going to be really, really painful for you. And everybody else around you, he says, the world, they're going to rejoice. Everyone else around you is going to think it's a moment of celebration when I am crucified on the cross. But for you, it's going to be sorrow. You're going to lament. And I love that. Jesus doesn't negate or look around or nullify the hard reality that they are about to walk through. Right? Like Jesus doesn't say, hey, I know it's going to be really hard, but like, don't worry about it. I got it. He says, no, it's going to be difficult. Like I, I, Three days later, you're going to see me again, but it's going to be really, really painful. Know that. Look at what he says, how he finishes verse 20. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus says, this is going to hurt. You're going to see the one that you have put your entire eternity into the hands of be crucified and murdered and executed. This is going to be painful. Your reality that you are about to live through is going to hurt, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he gives the most beautiful illustration of that in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Let's talk about childbirth, right? Just real briefly. Nine months. I've been told of nausea, 
swollen ankles, frustration, just annoyance. Not a, not a great nine months. There's a lot of highs, but there's also a lot of lows. And then you have a small, brief moment of excruciating pain. Pain that they say is almost second to none on the earth. And yet so many people willingly choose to do it and willingly choose to do it multiple times. That's crazy, <laughs> right? Like that is wild. Like you're giving up nine months of your life to carry a human, to have all of these problems, and then you're going to go through the most excruciating pain. Why would someone willingly do this over and over and over again? Here's why. Because there's joy on the other side. There's life on the other side, the sorrow turns into joy. And Jesus says, what happens when the, a baby is born into the world? She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus says, you're going to walk through suffering. You're about to face real painful sorrow. You're going to watch your Savior be crucified on the cross. And yet you got to trust me that it's worth it. You got to trust me that there's joy on the other side. And then he says it one more time, verse 22. So also you have sorrow now but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I'm going to be killed. The rest of the world's going to rejoice. You will weep. You will lament. You will suffer. And then you're going to see me again. I'm going to rise from the grave. I'm going to ascend, ascend to the right hand of the father and I'm going to rule and reign forever. And so what that means is that verse 22 is true for these disciples and true for all of us after them who put our faith in Christ, that no one can take our joy away from us. Why? Because Jesus is always on the throne. Jesus is always ruling and reigning. And then it keeps going in this discourse, 23 through 32. They kind of do this back and forth where the disciples are like, I think we get it. And Jesus is like, not really. And then they're like, this time. And it's like, not really. And then finally they get it and he encourages them to pray bold prayers in light of who he is. And then he wraps it up in verse 33. He says this, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, it's about to get really hard. I'm about to be crucified and murdered. And then you're going to see me again. And it's going to be good for a little while. And then it's going to be really hard again because I'm going to go to the right hand of the father and life is going to be really, really tough. He kind of guarantees it. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. And if you know the story of the disciples, you know, in the world, they had trouble. Most all of them die brutal deaths because of the gospel of Jesus. Most all of them live suffering lives. And Jesus says, in the midst of that, take heart because I have overcome the world. So what does that have to do with the cynicism cycle? Well, here's the deal. If you're the disciples, how easy is it for you in this moment and in the days to come after Jesus says this to walk out the cynicism cycle? Right? Like, think about it. You had expectations. You put your entire life, your entire eternity into this guy's hands. You gave up your career to follow him. You believed what he was saying, that he was the promised Messiah, that he was going to rescue God's people. And now he says he's going to leave. And now your reality isn't lining up with your expectations. He's leaving. He's about to be tried and tortured and killed. They're about to firsthand experience the death of Jesus. You don't have a more brutal suffering reality than seeing your savior murdered on the cross. So why wouldn't that lead to despair? Right? Like, why wouldn't that lead to cynicism? Why wouldn't they be thinking things like, you're just like the rest of those false messiahs. There's others that came, they claimed a bunch of stuff about who they were, and they died, and none of it came true. You're just like them. You're full of smoke. This is all pointless. What about the redemption? What about the kingdom of God? What about no more mourning or crying? What about freedom? What's going on, Jesus? And then Jesus offers them something so much better. He offers them defiant joy. 
This is the, the joy cycle. He says, I know you had certain expectations, but this is the reality. I'm going to die. He doesn't deny that. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, I'm going to die. You will have sorrow. You will scatter. You will feel abandoned. You will have trouble in the world. But here's the invitation. Not naivety and not despair. Hope. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. You will see me again. Hope, this deep-rooted trust in the goodness of God. For the disciples, it's trusting that God will do what he said he's going to do. That it is true that Christ has overcome the world. And here's the invitation for all of us. It's the same thing. It's hope. The invitation for us here on this side of the cross as followers of Jesus is hope that God has done what he said he would do. That Jesus did die, that he did suffer, that he was crucified, but also that he didn't stay dead. That three days later, he actually got up out of the grave. And now he is risen and ruling, and that will be true forever. Done deal, guaranteed. And listen, that doesn't negate our circumstances. It doesn't nullify our suffering or our pain or our frustrations with our lived reality. Hope, and I love this about hope, it doesn't necessitate that we turn a blind eye to our pain. It doesn't necessitate that we look away from our suffering or the pain and suffering of those around us. Hope isn't naive or blind to our brokenness and the brokenness of the world. And yet it's an invitation to look above our immediate circumstances and past our immediate circumstances onto the bigger and truer reality, namely Jesus on the throne forever. And then here's what happens. Just like despair gives way to cynicism, hope leads to the fruit of joy. Just like despair leads to cynicism, hope leads to the fruit of joy, this pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. Because here's the deal, as Christians, you can't just, and you don't just stop at hope. Right? You don't just like, all right, I know my situation is tough, I know that I'm suffering, I know that I'm, I'm sorrowful, I know that my reality isn't lining up with my expectations, I know the answer is not despair or naivety, I know the answer is hope, and so I'm hopeful and joyful, and then it's just like we're like mopey, half mopey, half like just trying to grab it. We think, okay, it just ends at hope, right? And so we walk around, and this is why Christians feel like some of the most depressed people on earth sometimes. Because we're like, oh, I just gotta be, I gotta be hopeful, and I'm joyful, and here's the deal joy is not just a feeling but it certainly has to do with our feelings right joy is not just an emotional response but it it's not just emotion but it is an emotional response eventually hope has to do the work of actually moving our souls towards celebration actually moving our hearts towards what is true eventually our feelings have to catch up with our disciplined choice and action of hope so here's what happens we suffer our reality doesn't match our expectations. And so what we do is we have the disciplined, tough, difficult, not easy to do choice of hope where we put our eyes on Jesus, on him on the throne, on him ruling and reigning. And eventually by the power of the spirit, that hope and disciplined choice of hope is what leads to the fruit of joy, of celebration, of remembering with all of ourselves this pervasive sense of well-being because of the goodness of God. That's joy, godly, defiant joy. This ability to say, I'm okay and glad in the Lord because I hope in him. That's joy. And the call to joy for a follower of God is all over the place in the scriptures. It's over 150 times in the Old Testament and over 60 times in the New Testament, this call of joy. And overwhelmingly, almost all of these have two factors. One, it's a looking back to the faithfulness of God and it's a looking forward to the future promise of God. 
Every time in the scriptures, over 200 times, over and over and over again, as the people of God, when we're called to joy, it says either look back at what God has done or look forward to what he's going to do. So as we do that, we as Christians should be the most joyful, hope-filled people in the world. We should be marked by this defiant, deep confidence in the past faithfulness of God and the future coming faithfulness of God. Because here's what happens. The rest of the world says you should be cynical. Says you shouldn't trust God or others. And yet God says, no, I've given you a family of believers so you can actually be filled with hope that leads to deep relational joy. The rest of the world says you can't trust anyone in authority. You do you. No one tell you what to do. But God gives good authority as a blessing. And so we are able defiantly to say, no, I'm hopeful about those God has placed over me and those he has placed me over. And that hopefulness leads to joy. The rest of the world says, this is how it's always going to be. It's always going to be this way. This is how it is. This is how the world works. But we believe in a God of redemption. So there's hope towards what's going on in our world, which leads us to joy and sacrifice and servitude. So we're not naive. We're not blind. We know the world is broken. We know that things aren't as God designed them to be. And yet we're not mopers. We're not head held low. Woe is me. This is how it is. We look up with joy, even in the midst of our very real suffering and pain sorrow. Cynicism says this is how it is. It's how it's always going to be. This is the world. This is my lot. I'm never going to change. Those around me are never going to change. My life is never going to change. And the Bible says that's not true, that we serve a God of redemption. We know this isn't the end. It's the, the main theme even in John 16. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. You're going to have trouble here, but I have overcome the world. And so we wait for joy to come, but we also have joy now in the promise. That's how Peter says it in, in 1 Peter 1, 8. I think he says it so helpfully. He says, though you have not seen him, him talking about Jesus, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, there's a future outcome of our faith, namely life forever with God that we are obtaining. That's a promise of the future. But even now, though we don't see it and though we don't see him, we can still rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you had joy that was inexpressible? When's the last time you thought about your salvation and said, this salvation that is guaranteed to me, past, present, and future, is leading me to joy that I just can't explain? This fact that Jesus is on the throne, ruling and risen and reigning over all things is leading me right now to joy that I just can't explain. I love how Henry Nouwen talks about it. He says, people who have come to know the joy of God do not deny the darkness, but they choose not to live in it. They claim that the light that shines in the darkness can be trusted more than the darkness itself and that a little bit of light can dispel a lot of darkness. They point each other to flashes of light here and there and remind each other that they reveal the hidden but real presence of God. We as the people of God should be the ones and are called to be the ones who stare down our suffering, see the hand of God, lift up our eyes, see King Jesus on the throne and choose hope, which leads to joy. Don't back away from it. We walk through it. When I was uh, 22 years old and a senior in college, uh, I experienced some of the worst uh, relational 
kind of heartbreak that I've experienced up until that point. So for uh, the majority of the four years leading up to my senior year, I was best friends with these two guys that, for the sake of the story, we'll call them Mike and Steve, uh, just because some of you guys know them. And so uh, me, Mike and Steve, were best friends. We did everything together. We walked through uh, the highs and lows of life together. We went through real suffering. We went through breakups. We went through ups and downs. We went through all of this stuff, so much so that it was one of those friendships where if you saw me, your first question would be like, how's it going? Where's Mike and Steve? Right? And then vice versa for them. We just did everything together. And then uh, leading into our senior year, Steve uh, started making some decisions that were pretty rebellious against God. It wasn't like little decisions. It wasn't like something we just disagreed with. It was like actively against the scripture, dangerous for himself, not going to lead to flourishing with God, active rebellion against Jesus type of decisions. And so Mike and I had a conversation and we said, hey man, he's a Christian. Like we, we got to in love, we got to sit him down. We got to talk to him about it. And so we sat down with him and we said, hey man, this is off. We're calling you back. Can we help uh, provide whatever you need to provide to get out of this situation, whatever it, it may be. What I don't, didn't know at the time and realized much, much later is that after Mike and I had the conversation with Steve, Mike stayed behind and had another conversation with Steve. During that conversation, he said, hey man, I don't actually agree with Tim on any of this. Like, I think he's off and uh, he's really just doesn't want to be your friend anymore. And he's trying to rally our whole friend group against you and trying to isolate you. And so I think it's better if you just don't listen and we just kind of ignore and, and get away from Tim. Friendship over. In a matter of two conversations, these two guys that I've been walking with so closely that had been a lot of the reason for my spiritual growth, for my walk with the Lord, for my calling into ministry, all of this, now suddenly those relationships and a lot of the community that we existed in were just gone in an instant. I mean, even to put it into perspective, uh, Mike was the best man in Steve's wedding and I wasn't invited and haven't talked to Steve in the last eight years. Now here's the deal, I'm not the hero or the victim of the story. I'm just not. I was 22, I said a lot of stupid things, I probably did not handle it well. Like I'm not, like this is not like a let's feel bad for Tim and his cynicism story. That's not the point or the goal. Here's, here's the thing, in that moment I noticed what I still wrestle with because of that reality even till today. I noticed that it marked me into this cynicism cycle when it comes to relationships. Like, I'm naturally not just an, a very open person. Like, I'm pretty introverted. I kind of like my space. But I noticed that that marked me, even to today, when I think back to what's my fear in regards to some of my relationships, it still stems back to 22-year-old Tim and abandonment and, and just a separation of relationship. And so what happens is, if I'm in a conversation and I know I have to say something hard to someone, my gut reaction is, this is it. They're going to bail. They're going to run my name through the mud. Like, they're out. This is not going to go well. I notice it when, if you were to ask me, Tim, how are you doing? That's like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> I hate that question. Some of y'all that know me well are like, yes, you hate, I hate that. If you're like, Tim, how are you doing? I'm like, don't. That's stupid. Why are we talking about, ugh. I mean, two weeks ago, I had a, a really just not great conflict with one of my really, really good friends. And it's like, it comes out of nowhere. But my first thought is, this is it. Like, he's going to bail. This is the end of our friendship. This is the end of the four years we've been walking together. Like, this is how it goes. Something happens. I have conflict in a relationship, and the person just bails because I have this filter when I'm living in the flesh of a cynicism cycle towards my relationships. 
And so I just assume my reality is not going to line up with my expectations. So what's going to happen is that I'm going to, I'm going to go through this where they're going to abandon me. They're going to rebel. It's not going to work out. And it's just going to continue to cycle and cycle and cycle. But here's the deal. That is not of the spirit. Because what happens is when I'm living into that and into the flesh and into that cynicism of they're going to bail, they're not going to listen, they're going to hurt me, they're going to flee. What I'm doing is I'm robbing myself the joy that God gives us and offers to us in deep relationships. Did you see that? Like I'm robbing myself of the opportunity and the joy the Bible offers us to give and receive love from believers to give and receive care, to give and receive help, to actually be known and to know. And so everything within my flesh wants to walk through the cynicism cycle and use it as an excuse to not actually let anybody close to me, right? Because it's so easy to be like, of course, I'm not going to answer that question of how am I doing? First, that's stupid. Second of all, no, I'm going to get hurt. That's the flesh. It's not the Lord. I'm robbing myself in that moment because here's the deal. I'm robbing them of joy of giving and receiving love and I'm robbing myself of the joy of giving and receiving love. You can apply this to anything. You can apply it to relationships. You can apply it to your job. You can apply it to your spiritual growth, right? We can live into the cynicism cycle with our sanctification. I'm always going to be this way. I'm always going to struggle with that sin. I'm always going to struggle with that doubt. I'm always going to struggle with that addiction. This is just who I am. And we can rob ourselves of the joy of, that comes from the hope that God is actually on the throne and he's actually doing something. And he actually wants to redeem. So we're called to you. Cynicism is an enemy of our joy, and yet we are called to joy in a time of cynicism. Let me kind of wrap up with this. This is a way, joy in a time of cynicism is a way that we become like Jesus because this is what Christ does. This is what he's pointing to in John 16. He's talking about his dying on the cross, the suffering that he will face. If you don't know the story, this is the summary. Jesus, right after this, is going to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified and die a brutal death. He's going to be betrayed by one of his closest 12, one of his 12 closest friends. And then the other 11 are just going to up and abandon him. One's going to deny him three times. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be insulted. He's going to be ridiculed and slandered. A week earlier, he was entering the city and everyone was celebrating him. And then a day after this, everyone's going to say, we want a murderer instead of you, Jesus. Give us the murderer instead of Jesus. He's going to be slandered. He's going to be mocked. He's going to have a crown of thorns placed on his head. He's going to be whipped one lash short of death. His back and the flesh on it completely torn off. He's going to go to the hill of Golgotha. He's going to have nails driven through his hands and his feet. He's going to be left to die a humiliating, public, reserved for the worst of the worst type of death through suffocation on the cross. To add to the physical pain and the emotional pain, Jesus, who was perfect, is going to take the full wrath of his heavenly Father that was supposed to be for us, for sin and for sinners, poured out upon himself on our behalf. So don't be too familiar with the story to not ask the next question, which is why. Hebrews 12 tells us, it says this, it says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Even the death of Christ, the greatest suffering there ever was, was full of joy. Jesus goes to the cross for joy. Why? Because he knows there is life on the other side. 
He knows there is freedom on the other side. He knows there is redemption on the other side. He knows there is joy and life on the other side, namely the forgiveness of sins and the offer for all of us who would believe life forever with God. Jesus was deeply committed to joy. But he knew that joy was not absent from suffering, did not turn a blind eye to suffering, was not absent from pain, but necessitated his pain. As we become like Jesus, joy in a time of cynicism. So this week, we got another practice guide for you that we want to help you cultivate joy in your life. Uh, if you're like, practice guides are cool, what's this? And then you throw it away, don't do that. Uh, these were thought out, and they were designed to be helpful to you as we seek to cultivate. We talked about this uh, week one and last week. If you want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, you need both grit and you need grace. You need grit. You got to do some stuff. You got to put in some work. You got to have some discipline, but you also need grace. Romans 15 says that God is the one who fills us with all joy and peace. And so if you want to have the spirit of the fruit of the spirit of joy cultivated in your life, you're going to need the grace of God and you're going to need some grit. And so there's two practices on here. Practice one is the practice of gratitude. Looking back on the faithfulness of God, this is one of the ways we cultivate joy. And there's some prompts for you each day of the week, Monday through Friday, for you to be uh, reminded of and prompted to think about the goodness and faithfulness of God and give great give gratitude to God for that, which will help cultivate joy in your life. And then the second practice is to uproot. There are some things biblically that keep you from joy. Some of those things scripturally are unconfessed sin, comparison, jealousy, lack of forgiveness, disbelief, forgetting the goodness of God, several things like that. And so there's some prompts. I'd encourage you to take 30 minutes one day this week, get away, get aside, get alone with the Lord, some silence and some solitude, and just use these prompts to ask the Lord, is there things in my life that are keeping me back from the joy on offer through the Holy Spirit? So that's the two practices, gratitude, uprooting. Uh, Let's spend some time this week uh, with the grace of God and the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to cultivate joy. That's how we become like Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for uh, the offer of joy for us. God, thank you uh, that Hebrews 12 is true. That Jesus, for the, the joy set before him, endured the cross. He despised the shame, and yet he's seated at the right hand of your throne. Now, thank you that Jesus is risen and ruling and reigning forever. That's a guarantee. And so we have on offer not some naivety to our problems, not some optimism that that soothes our wounds or our suffering, but the chance to look above and past our suffering to our deeper, truer reality, Jesus on the throne. God, I pray that we will be a church marked by hopeful, defiant joy. Joy that says, yes, pain is real. The world is broken. My life is broken. Suffering hurts, and it's a very real part of humanity, this side of eternity. And yet we, in the midst of that, choose hope, which leads to joy. God, help us. We need your spirit in this, God. We need your grace, God. Romans 15 says that it's you that fills us with all hope and joy, God. And so would you help us? God, we need you in this. We love you. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.